Well, preschoolers, you are dismissed, and uh, everyone else, please open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you are turning there, I want to share with you the sad but all too relatable story of Danny Simpson. Back in 1990 in Ottawa, Canada, Danny Simpson decided to rob a bank. Now, hopefully that's not the relatable part of the story for you guys today. That's not what I meant to be the relatable part. But Danny Simpson, I'm not sure what all was going on in his life, but he had a a desperate need for money and he, he felt like he didn't have any good options. And so he made the unwise and wrong decision of robbing a bank and taking $6,000. Now, I don't know why he only took $6,000. Maybe that's all they had, but he takes $6,000 and he eventually gets caught and he gets convicted of armed robbery and sent to jail for six years. This is a true story, okay? So for six years, he's in jail. And after the authorities confiscated the gun that he had used to rob the bank, they examined it. And they did some research on it because it was an older gun, and they identified the gun as a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic made by the Ross Rifle Company of Quebec City in 1918, a gun that has a value of roughly $100,000. I mean, can you imagine sitting in prison, as Danny was, for six years and getting word that the gun he used to rob a bank of $6,000 was actually worth $100,000. If only he had realized the value and worth of the treasure that he already had. Now, I said this was a sad and relatable story. Here's the relatable part of the story. If only he had realized the value and the worth of the treasure he already had. And so church, this is our second week of addressing the topic of Christian contentment. And you see, in, in sinful discontentment, when we, when we have hearts that are discontented and, and led down this path of sinful discontentment, we are led to pursue things that we are deceived into thinking are really, really valuable only to find out in the end that those things that our, that our sinful discontentment leads us to pursue are nowhere close to the value and worth of what we already have in Christ. Discontentment, it deceives our discernment of what really has lasting value and what doesn't. It throws off our weights and measures, and we're unable to decide what our real treasure really is when we have a discontented heart. When when we're discontented, it's, it's as if we hold monopoly money in one hand and real money in the other, and we're not sure which one is really worth pursuing. And so last week, we started into this topic by first defining contentment as a deep satisfaction with the will of God, a deep satisfaction with the will of God. And we talked about how contentment is something that must be learned. This is not something that we just naturally know how to do. We must learn contentment. 
And this is something that the Lord is trying to teach us as he tests us and tries us and brings different things into our life. He's, he's trying to help us learn contentment. We then became aware of three attributes of God, his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his goodness, that if we grow in believing and trusting in these, we can grow in our contentment. And then if you remember, I left you with four things that I was going to commit to, and I carried around on a note card this past week and invited you all, whoever wanted to, to join, join with me in this, and you still can join with me in this. We're going to add some things to the note card today, though. But last week, I, I committed to, to not complain about anything this month, including the weather. And even as I was sharing with you that point, I started complaining about the weather. And so I did not, I did not perfectly keep that one this week. But, uh, but by the grace of God, I've progressed in that. I committed to, to not wish for a different past or present. I committed to never compare my own lot with that of another. And I committed to not set my mind on the worries of tomorrow. And so, church, I do admit, I did not perfectly follow each of those this week, but by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, I made progress with those. And just even having the note card in my pocket, it helped remind me to continue to trust in God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, and God's goodness as He continues to help me learn contentment. Now today, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us learn and grow in our contentment by helping us discern what in life is actually great gain. Because we've acknowledged with a discontented heart, we hold monopoly money and real money, we're not sure which one is worth more. All too often, we think that great gain is the $6,000 in the bank that we want to figure out a way to get. All the while, we're holding something that's worth $100,000 on our hip. And so today, we'll look at first how godliness with contentment is great gain. That'll be point number one in our sermon this morning. We'll then look at the subtle trap the enemy sets for us in our pursuit of great gain. And then finally, we'll see a very practical way that the Lord uses in our life to help free us from falling into this trap. But before we jump in, let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for bringing about this, this um, topic from your word for us to focus in on this month. And God, we do ask that you would give us contentment this Christmas. We ask, Lord, that you would help us learn contentment. We ask that, Lord, you would continue to help us grow in believing and trusting in your sovereignty and your wisdom and your goodness. And we ask today, Lord, that you would give us clarity to see what really is of great worth in this world. Show us what really is great gain. We ask that you would open up our eyes by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me now. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, we're, we're parachuting in on Paul's uh, instructions to Timothy. So back up a little bit just to get some context. Actually, look back at verse uh, 3. It says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction amongst people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Paul here is warning Timothy that there will be some people in the church who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. The, the problem of false teachers teaching the prosperity gospel and using the things of God to advance their own agenda and wealth, that, this is not a new problem. Even back in Paul's day, this was a problem, and yes, it persists today. There will be some people in the church who will use God and pursue godliness in order to get what they really want, which is not God. And this includes more than just people preaching on television asking for a donation. There will be people in the church who pursue God and godliness in order to get money. There will be people who pursue God and godliness in order to get more power or control over people. There will be people who pursue God and godliness in order to get respect and acceptance. There will be people in the church who will use God and godliness to get friends and to get a sense of approval. These are people who are deceived by the discontentment in their hearts and they don't value or treasure God above all things, but instead they use God in order to get the things that they really treasure. They use God, the one of infinite value, to get the money or the power or the stuff or the acceptance that they see in the bank vault that they want to rob, which has limited value. And Paul warns Timothy that using God to get these lesser things, that is not great gain. That is great loss. You will get to the end of your life and you will realize your life has been a great loss. Because what does he say is great gain? He says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now let's define those terms, okay? Godliness is a word most literally that, that most literally means well worship. It's 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 a word getting at the having a right honor and reverence uh, towards God. This is a word that it is describing having a having a Godward attitude and a, a God uh, awareness in life, a, a Godward approach to all things in life. A godly value system that values things the way God values things. 
And therefore, a godly person treasures God above all else. Godliness is, is living with a constant awareness of God's presence, all the while understanding that all things are from him and for him. And so true godliness includes always being aware that God owns it all, provides it all, and is worth it all. So a lot of different definitions you can put under there ungodliness. It's, it's, it's essentially a right honor and reverence towards God, the right worship of God. But in the context of contentment that we're talking about today, true godliness includes understanding and being aware of that God owns it all, provides it all, and is worth it all. You see, some people had figured out in Paul's day and in ours as well that having the appearance of godliness can sometimes get you some temporary gains in life. There are some cultures and some times in history that Christians have lived in, which by the way, we're, we're probably still in one of those times, although probably nearing the end of it. And it's a time where people can look around and see that going to church and being a church-going person, that, that could be good for business. And so people, they go to a church where they can network with the most people and play church and act godly in public, all for the sake of using God to get what they really value in life, which is a successful business and social life. But that's not the way to get great gain in life, according to God's word. No, God's word says godliness with contentment is great gain. And remember how contentment is to be defined, a deep satisfaction with the will of God. Godliness, living with a constant awareness of God, that he owns it all, that he provides it all, that he's worth it all. Couple that with contentment, a deep satisfaction with the will of God. Oh, that is the way to get great gain in life. You see, godliness, a constant awareness of God, includes, it's, it's, it, you understand that God is the owner of everything. And therefore, the things we have, which I put in air quotes for those of you listening to this, the things we have, he has merely entrusted to us for a time, but they are ultimately his. Oh, you see, there is a problem in the human heart that upon seeing things in the world, we sinfully want to see something, grab something, and claim something as mine. Isn't this one of the first words we, we learn as a child? Mine? 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 Put, small, put, put a bunch of small children in a room with a limited amount of toys and just start watching them, start claiming stuff? Claiming stuff as mine? And adults, we still have that same problem in our heart. We've just learned to be a bit more polite about it. But we still claim things as mine. This is my seat. This is my health. This is my money. This is my stuff. And then when we see stuff we don't have, we're tempted to say, well, that should be mine. That should be mine. Why is that yours? That should be mine. And all of our greed and lust and envy that come out of a discontented heart, all that greed, lust, and envy, it is a mind problem. We see, we want, and we claim as mine. 
But godliness is living with a constant awareness of God, and that should lead us to see that God is the owner of all things, not us. A godly person, a person growing in godliness, sees and believes more and more that the only one who can truly claim anyone or anything as mine is God. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. God says, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God can claim things as his, as mine. And someone growing in godliness with contentment sees that God is the owner of everything and therefore the things that we do have, we are to be stewards of. They have been entrusted to us for a time. The things that we do have, they've been entrusted to us for a time and the things that we don't have, they have not been entrusted to us at this time. And God has entrusted them to others. And therefore, a very practical way to become more godly and less worldly is to remove the word mine from your vocabulary. I'm sure there's maybe some exceptions to this, but in general, to remove the word mine from your vocabulary. For example, when you look at your bank account, someone with a worldly attitude says, this money is mine. Whereas a godly attitude says, This money is God's that he has temporarily entrusted to me. God, how can I best serve you and glorify you with this money you've entrusted to me? Let me tell you, that type of attitude coupled with contentment will lead to great gain in your life in regard to your finances. Or how about this? When you look at someone, when you look at someone that you have a relationship with, whether it's just a spouse, a child, or a friend, someone with a worldly attitude says, this spouse is mine, this child is mine, this friend is mine. But in speaking like that, you start to think that they primarily exist for you. And therefore, when they hurt you, or when God takes them from you, you become angry because they're mine and they exist to serve me. Whereas a godly attitude says, this person is God's and God has temporarily entrusted this relationship to me. God, how can I best serve you and glorify you with this relationship you've entrusted to me? And church, that type of attitude coupled with contentment, that will lead to great gain in your relationships. Or how about this, when you look at your stuff, your possessions, someone with a worldly attitude says, this stuff is mine, and your stuff should be mine, and I have a right to this amount of stuff because this is the amount of stuff that other people have, and so this is all mine or should be mine, whereas a godly attitude says, this stuff is God's, and he has temporarily entrusted it to me. God, how can I best serve you and glorify you with this stuff you've entrusted to me? 
And church, let me tell you, that type of attitude coupled with contentment will lead to great gain with your possessions. All because you are pursuing godliness with contentment, realizing that you are not an owner but a steward of everyone and anything God has given you right now. And that truth will have even greater implications for us next week when we talk about learning contentment in the midst of suffering. Today we're talking about when the Lord gives. Next week we're talking about being content when the Lord takes away and being able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord in both of those situations. And so we've got to get this this week because next week it's going to get more difficult and because the reason the Lord can take it away is because he's the one who gave it to you in the first place. But we'll save that for next week. But just know it gets more difficult as we keep going. And for now, understand this, that someone growing in godliness is believing and trusting in the fact that God owns it all, God provides it all, and God is worth it all. God is more valuable than anything else in the treasure, uh, anything else in the universe, excuse me. He is our greatest treasure. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If you want to learn and grow in contentment, you must grow in believing and trusting that God is your treasure of infinite worth. All these lesser treasures we have, we are to use them to glorify the greatest treasure, not the other way around. Look back at 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing, we, can, we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. We exit this world with none of the temporary treasures we collect for ourselves here on earth. This is why God's word says it's, it's, um, he teaches us so much when we go to a funeral, when we gather to celebrate Dwayne's life on, on Friday. If you were here, you noticed that in the procession going to the graveside, there was not a U-Haul involved in the procession line. But thanks be to God, Dwayne's treasure was Christ. Now, if godliness with contentment is great gain, if godliness with contentment is great gain, then what should we be discontent with? I mentioned last week that discontentment is not always sinful. There are a few rare exceptions where discontentment's not sinful. Most of the time, discontentment is sinful. But if we see here in God's word what real gain is, then we also see that we should be discontent with our ungodliness and we should be discontent with our discontentment. If there is something you should be discontented about and want more of, it's that you should want more godliness. You should want more contentment. You should want to know and enjoy Christ more. If you want to be ambitious for something, be ambitious. Be ambitious for the glory of God. I by no means want to squelch any godly ambition in the room in this contentment for Christmas series. 
Christian contentment is not a call to complacency. It's not a call to just shrugging our shoulders and being okay to sit back and be indifferent to the mission of God in the world. No, be ambitious for godliness and contentment. Wake up and get after pursuing more of Christ. Go about your business and your daily work with a zeal that others can't understand, all because you are working as a steward of what God has given you, recognizing that everything is from him and for him. Go be ambitious in business so that you can take these lesser temporary treasures and magnify your greatest treasure. Go be ambitious in your schooling and steward your mind well so you can glorify your greatest treasure. Go be ambitious wherever God has put you with whatever God has given you, recognizing that everything is from him and for him. And, this will help guard against envy, and if there is something that he has not currently given you, then you must not need it in order to glorify him today. Be discontent with your ungodliness. Be discontent with the sin that is still in your heart. Be discontent with your discontentment, church, and go be ambitious for God, living in the reality more and more that God owns it all, provides it all, and is worth it all. But now here's the problem. In our ambition to know more of God and glorify and treasure him more, There are many traps and snares set by the enemy of our souls and the sinfulness in our own hearts. And God tells us of one of those traps to beware of in the next few verses of 1 Timothy. Look with me now at 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's clarify a couple of things. First, it's not sinful, and it doesn't make you less godly to be wealthy. Many times, at least in the time and the place we live in, if someone is disciplined with their money, if someone is a hard worker, over time, wealth could be accumulated. It doesn't always work out that way. There's not not a guarantee for that. But many times, if someone is disciplined with their money and a hard worker, and that happens generation after generation, with each generation helping the following generation, riches could come. And it's not wrong or sinful to be wealthy. God's word says that it is those who desire to be rich that fall into temptation. And that it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and suffered many self-inflicted wounds. And so, yes, this is a warning to those who are wealthy, absolutely a warning to those who are wealthy, but this is also a warning to those who are poor, and this is a warning to those who are middle class. For all can be ensnared by this desire, this love, this craving. 
God's word says it's not wrong to be rich, but it's the burning desire and craving and love for riches that will trap you and ensnare you and keep you from your ambition to glorify your greatest treasure. And this has a bigger application than just money, although he is specifically addressing money here. But in the, in the context of a bigger application, listen, it's not wrong to want things and ask God for things. It's not wrong. As long as we can hold those requests with open hands and we can learn contentment with however God answers. Some of you young men, you, you want to make more money so that you can start families and you can buy a house and you can have lots of babies and you can provide for your family and you can bless your church and be generous with others. And I say, praise God. It's not wrong to want that. Some of you women, you want more emotional intimacy with your husbands. You want it. You know it would be good for both of you. You're asking God for it. You want more of your husband's heart. You want more communication with him on a deeper level. And I say, praise God, it is not wrong to want that. Some of you want more friendships. You want more opportunities to use your gifts and abilities. You want God to do more miracles in your life. You want more responsibilities. You want more influence. You want more whatever it is. And I say, praise God, it is not wrong to want those things. However, it becomes sinful. And when you know you have become discontent is when your wants turn into needs. It's when your wants turn into your needs. It's not just, I want more money. It's, I need more money. And if I don't have it, then I will despair. I don't just want more intimacy with my spouse. I need it. And if I don't get it, then I despair. I get hot angry or cold angry or or some type of angry in between. And I get led astray into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, as God's word says. And when our wants turn into these deep needs, desires, cravings, and loves, that is when we become entrapped and ensnared by these things, which hold lesser value than God, because the only thing we should really need more of is God. He is all we need, church. I know God has laid on our hearts different wants and passions and desires, And many of those things are good and right, and we should prayerfully pursue those things. But sin enters in and and, and twists things and turns things, and all of a sudden our wants become our absolute needs. But the truth of it is, He is all we need. He is all we need. But you won't know if you really believe that until God says no to some of your wants in order to show you that he is all you need. You, you won't. I, I don't know another way to know that you actually believe. He, I mean, I think we could all say God is all we need. We'll say amen to that. Yes, amen. We all agree. We all affirm that. But you won't really know if you believe that until God says no to some of your wants. And it's in those moments 
he will show you that he is all you need. I wish there was an easier way for him to teach us that. But even in that, he's preparing you. He's preparing you for the moment when your godliness with contentment will be put to its final test, your final exam, if you will, when you lay on your deathbed like our brother Dwayne just did with everything stripped from him and yet he was at peace because he knew all he really needed was Christ. Church, don't fall into this snare where your wants turn into needs, into deep desires, cravings, and loves, for the love of money has captured too many Christians in its snare. It has. It has. This is a trap. This is a trap set by the enemy, set by the sinfulness in our own heart. This is, we're, we have some good pursuits, good desires, good mission, good things happening here, but this is a trap. And we know the schemes of the enemy. Let us not be ignorant of them. Let us not assume that, that other people fall into these traps, but we never would. The love of money has captured many Christians in its snare and kept them from being truly ambitious for the glory of God. But thanks be to God, Paul gives some very practical advice for those who are rich. Which, let's just clarify this, everyone living in America is to some degree rich compared to the rest of the world. So look down with me now at verse 17 for this very practical exhortation to free us from these traps and snares. Verse 17, 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to be high-minded, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I read a story about a merchant in Mexico who sold parrots. And a tourist noticed that he didn't have any cages for these parrots. They were all just sitting on their perches, no cages, and yet none of them flew away. And the tourist was like, wow, those parrots must really love you. Like, they must really want to be here. And the guy said, no, actually, uh, the merchant said, no, the parrots don't fly away because I've trained them to associate their perches with safety and security. Now, I don't know his parrot training methods or what all went into that, but essentially he did some things with the parrots to help connect the dots in their brains and train them to associate their perches with feeling safe and secure. And therefore, when they're trained in this way, they wrap their claws tightly around the perch and they don't want to ever let go of it because they want so bad to feel safe and secure. And he said, once they've been trained in that way, it's almost as if they've forgotten that they know how to fly. <laughs> 
Church, that is a picture of us when we are not growing in godliness with contentment. That is a picture of us when we fall into the trap of a love of money. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a parent that forgets he knows how to fly. And I don't know if I've ever said that sentence before or if you have thought that as well. Maybe you want to be a parent like that. I I don't want to be. The best part about being a bird is that you can fly. You were designed to fly above the dangers, not to grip onto a perch and think that that was going to give you safety and security. When we are not aware of God and don't have a Godward attitude, everything in us and around us tells us that we and trains us that we should associate money with safety and security. The more money we have, the more safe and secure we should feel. The less money we have, the less safe and secure we should feel. Church, that is not true. We need to break that association and connection in our brains. Because when we think like that, just like the claws of the parrots, we grasp onto money with all of our lives and because we think that is what will make us safe and secure. And the tourist then asked the merchant how he would unteach the parrots this behavior. And he said, simple, you just show them how to release their grip and then they can fly as free as they want. That's what Paul is doing in verses 17 through 19. He's trying to show us how to release our grip. Paul says this is how you can still fly with God and pursue godly ambitions and not get trapped with these things here on earth. You must learn to release your grip on whatever it is that you are gripping onto that you think is making you safe and secure other than Christ. Because if you don't learn to release your grip on that, you won't be able to grab onto that which is truly life, which is Jesus Christ. And so for many of us, it is, it is our money. We need to loosen our grip on it. We need to break the association we've made with money and our feelings of safety and security. I mean, just think, do a little thought experiment with me. Think about the last time you got an unexpected small or large amount of money. Think, think about that. I mean, how did you, that did something to you emotionally, didn't it? You, you felt really good for a little bit. You sort of got this high, like felt like you were walking on the clouds, not a worry in the world. I mean, you could be passing a kidney stone, but if you've got a large check in your back pocket, you're feeling okay. Now think about the last time you got an unexpected bill or big expense. That did something to you emotionally as well, didn't it? You felt bad and anxious for a little while. You, you, you were thinking about it the whole day. Your mind was set upon it. You were worried how it was all going to work out, how you could get it figured out. I mean, you could be surrounded by friends and family, and they could be holding a parade in your honor, and you'd be thinking about how you're going to pay this bill. You see, it's not wrong to have and hold on to some money and possessions. But if we're not pursuing godliness with contentment, 
that money and those possessions, they start to have a hold on us, don't they? That money that we're grasping onto for safety and security, it starts to feel like it's grasping onto us. But here's how we battle against getting caught in this snare is as we become rich in good works. We practice generosity and we're ready to share with others what God has entrusted to us. Now, for those of you who don't have much money and, and you maybe feel like you can relate most to verse 8 in this passage, look back at verse 8. All you have is some food and clothing. Maybe some of you relate to that one the most. God's call to you then is to be generous with your food and clothing. Be generous with whatever God has entrusted to you right now. When you give to others, when you give to the church, when you give to missions, international missions, when you give to bless or meet the needs of others, yes, it is a blessing to them. It is God's way of providing for them. But it's also a blessing to you as it is God's way of teaching you to release your grip on money and take hold of that which is truly life. And as you release your grip on money, you are reminded that money is not great gain. Money is like monopoly money compared to our real treasure. It's useful for a time and season, but it does not hold eternal value. And I believe in order to really learn to release your grip, you need to give, you need to be generous to the point of some degree of discomfort. Discomfort really is the the, the times that God uses to grow us and strengthen us. Just talk to anyone who who exercises or lifts weights or goes to school. I mean, everything we do, we mainly grow and develop and are strengthened in times of discomfort. And the same is true with giving and generosity. Everyone has a number they feel comfortable, wouldn't even think about giving away, but then we all have a number we'd, we'd pause. We'd feel a little uncomfortable with this number. And I'm telling you, if you want to release your grip on money, if you want to grow in your generosity and your godliness with contentment, you got to give to the point of some discomfort. That's got to be the the number that God uses to start prying your claws off of your false sense of safety and security. That's the amount that starts to break the association in our brain between money and safety. Money and possessions have some temporary purposes and uses, but ultimately they are to be used to glorify our greatest treasure. Money is not great gain. And if you pursue money to the neglect of of your pursuit of godliness with contentment, your life will be a great loss. Because it is godliness with contentment that is truly great gain. So church, in in closing, there are great things to gain in the world. Let us be ambitious for godliness with contentment. Let us not be like the man who tried to use a $100,000 gun to rob a bank of $6,000. 
Let us not use God to get things. Let's use things to get more glory for God. And let us not get to the end of our lives and miss out on the value and the worth of the treasure that we already have. God owns it all. God provides it all. God is worth it all. God is the greatest giver in the universe. And God has given you the greatest treasure. He has given you himself. And if you have Christ, then you have all you will need. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Godliness with contentment is great gain, church. Let's pray.